0: Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Justin Laymiller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. I have to admit that I don't actually watch a lot of movies and TV shows about sex. Many people are probably surprised by this, given what I do for a living. The problem for me is that it often feels like work. I mean, I spend all day, every day, talking about sex, so sometimes I just want a break from it. But every so often, a film or show about sex comes along that I really enjoy, because it both entertains and gets the story right. So today's episode is all about one such film I recently saw that you should definitely put on your list. I am joined by independent filmmaker Alex Liu, creator of the award-winning documentary A Sexplanation. In this film, Alex travels across the United States and Canada, speaking with experts and everyday people to open up healthy conversations about sex and reduce sexual shame. This film covers a lot of ground, including sex education, masturbation, porn, fantasy, religion, and more. We're going to dive into some of the topics explored in this film, explore Alex's own coming-out journey and discuss some of the fascinating interviews he shares in the film, including discussions about sex with his own parents and with a Catholic priest. This is going to be an amazing conversation. Stick around, and we're going to jump in right after the break. Become a certified sex educator, counselor, or therapist with the Modern Sex Therapy Institutes. MSTi offers 20 certification options in areas including medical sexology, kink, neurodiversity and lgbtqia affirmative therapy they also offer a phd program in clinical sexology that can be completed in two years and meets all asec certification requirements all programs can be completed 100 online and are flexible and customizable to fit your schedule you can take live courses the third weekend of each month and choose from over 300 archive workshops taught by renowned experts in the field for more information visit Modern Institutes.com. That's ModernSexTherapyInstitutes.com. Enhance your sexual performance with FirmTech. Check out their tech ring, which is designed to give you harder, longer-lasting erections while also tracking your erectile fitness. Wear it at night to monitor nocturnal erections and cardiovascular health, or wear it during lovemaking for a boost in the bedroom. Unlike other erection rings, FirmTechs is easy to put on, adjustable to your comfort, and it can go on whether you're hard or soft. To learn more, check the show notes or visit myfirmtech.com and be sure to use my exclusive discount code, Justin20, to save 20% off your purchase. Again, that's myfirmtech.com. Ohmygodyes.com is a website with findings from the largest ever research study into women's pleasure. In partnership with Kinsey Institute researchers, tens of thousands of women were asked what made their pleasure better, both solo and with partners. And then they found the patterns in those discoveries and organized all of that wisdom on omgs.com in the form of super honest videos, animations, and how-tos. It's a fantastic resource that can help you to find new things you didn't even know that you or your partner liked. Visit omgs.com Justin to learn more and enjoy 33% off. This is also an incredible tool for therapists and clinicians to advance your knowledge and provide evidence-based care for your clients. It provides data that normalizes diverse experiences, a guide to varied pleasure techniques, and a framework for couples to explore their preferences. Clinicians and therapists can get a free personal membership by visiting omgs.com doctors. That's omgs.com slash doctors. Hi, Alex, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology podcast.
1: Hi, thanks for having me. This, I've been looking forward to this all week.
0: <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me. It is a pleasure to speak with you. So I'd like to begin our conversation by asking you to tell us a little bit about your own personal experience with sex education. So where did you learn about sex and what kind of messages were you taught?
1: Yeah, so I think the only times that sex was actually some sort of instruction around sex through Trusted Adults in My Life came through, you know, there was puberty education, and then there was a strong abstinence-only set of education, which was, you know, the, the curricula clearly was to prevent teen pregnancy, and it was during the scare of HIV-AIDS, you know, uh, early 90s. So it was pretty uh, fear-mongering when it came to, you know, the best Policy was just say no abstinence until you're 18 or or later, or frankly through the Catholic Church. What I heard through the Catholic Church around how to stay good and pure and on the right side of the angels uh, was to only have sex within heterosexual uh, marriage. So that was the kind of instruction I had. I think the largest message I got was silence. Right, the, the biggest message I got from the adults in my life who loved me uh, was was silence, frankly, because no one talked to them, no one talked to their parents, no one talked to their parents. You know, it, it's silence was probably the, the loudest message I got in terms of this is something uh, sex is something we, we we don't really talk about.
0: Yeah, my experience was kind of similar. You know, I was a product of Catholic school upbringing and, you know, we didn't get a lot of information about sex anywhere. I I know I've talked about this on the show before, but there was one day in the fifth grade where we had sex ed and they separated the boys and the girls and I was really excited because I was finally going to learn about sex. And I wrote sex ed (laughs) really big at the top of a piece of paper. And at the end of the day, I had literally written nothing down because they just I think showed us diagrams and used words and things that I just didn't understand, you know. I got nothing out of it. The thing I remember most is that the girls all got goodie bags and the boys didn't. And I didn't know what was in those (laughs) bags, but I was really jealous. (laughs) So, you know, it's just, yeah, my sex ed was pretty inadequate as well. You know, when you get to high school, they were telling you, you know, don't do it. And we didn't talk a lot about it at home either. So I can very much relate to your experience.
1: What, the only thing that, that really sticks with me is like, we probably had like a watched a 10 minute video of every single STI, untreated STIs, full explicit images of genitalia. That's my biggest kind of memory of being seared into my brain at probably 13, 14. That sex is something that is scary, uh, dangerous, risky. If you have it at an early age, you're sinning in some way, if, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, I don't remember getting any videos like that. If I did, it was such a traumatic memory that I blocked it. So (laughs) I don't have access to it anymore. But our experiences were very parallel in a lot of ways. So let's talk about your film, A Sexplanation. I actually first learned about this through a friend. He told me he had won some tickets to a screening and told me I should check it out. He said it was fantastic. And incidentally, he thought you were really attractive. So if you want me to play matchmaker, just (laughs) let me know. Um, (laughs) But I checked it out and I've wanted to have you on the show ever since. So one of the things that I think you did really well was to balance discussing your own sexual journey While also diving into research and data and interviews. And as a sex educator, blogger, and podcaster myself, you know, this is something I really struggled with for a long time. You know, how much do I reveal about myself in the process? And for many years, I totally resisted this. You know, I would even go so far as when other people were going to be interviewing me on their shows... To say, you know, I'm happy to talk about anything related to sex. The only subject that is off limits is my own personal life, because I only (laughs) wanted to talk about data. But over time, I got more comfortable with adding in that personal element, because, you know, in some ways it's cathartic, but it also makes the information more relatable. But it's still a little scary to put information about your sex life. Terrifying. Yeah. Terrifying. Putting it on display is is scary because we know there's so much sex shaming that can happen. So can you talk a little bit about this? You know, what was it like to give people this intimate look at your life? And what is the reaction to that been?
1: <laughs> well, I, I can totally relate to where you're coming from. Uh, you know, the day before this was released at our, our world premiere film festival, I was literally puking in, you know, like just dry heaving. You know, I was so nervous about that. I would kind of reveal my deepest, darkest fantasies, my, the shame I went through. I masturbate in a MRI machine on camera. <laughs> you know, I uh, and I think the biggest lesson I've learned through this this film is people most people are just so grateful and appreciative and really hungry for this information. You know, people are looking for permission to talk about these things because it's so scary, you know. You know, everyone has that deep-seated shame. Sometimes I think as far as we've come as a culture, we still most of us are still like not even really conscious of how deep the shame runs. You know, like to even say the word penis in an intimate relationship can be difficult for some people. And the messages that we've internalized go back, you know, thousands of years to the point where, where it's kind of like the air we breathe. You know, we don't notice how how deep the negativity can be until you kind of put yourself out there and start to kind of push your, your way through kind of the, that thicket. I don't know. I don't know. I'd don't. i love to hear your experience too, like what it's been like for you. You know, for me, I, I mean, there are still parts of myself, I, I know I keep private for different reasons, but it, it's something where I think, you know, I thought I was going to make the sexiest episode of 60 Minutes ever, right? I, th- I thought I was going to be Leslie Stahl, uh, fly on the wall, talk to these, uh, like you said, scientists, data, you know, and try to package that. But every cut we made of the film that was like that, test audiences just got bored. <laughs> they just got bored, you know? And 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 my creative team kept pushing me like, why this movie? Like, you're a science and health reporter. You could have made it about anything, right? You could have made your first documentary about you, your, your interests are wide. Why this? And I would go into these long tirades about how uh, damaged I am from sexual shame, how, how I feel like I, I don't know how to process complicated sexual relationships, uh, you know, and how I don't want another generation to go through what I went through. And as I was talking about this, my writing partner, Leonardo Neri, just kept saying, this is it. This is the movie. This I am more engaged in you talking about why you're making this movie than I am about the movie we've been filming with that support, you know, I couldn't have done it without a strong community team kind of supporting me every bit of the way to get me to be open up more and more. People want to hear a story, you know, people want want to connect emotionally and engage emotionally. And if you really want to open hearts and minds and, and get people to think critically about uh, and let go of many of the defenses, the negativity that, that kind of, we're kind of born into, you need that person to kind of relate to and engage with. And uh, that's kind of a, a seven-year journey of, of getting to that point.
0: Yeah, and I think most of us have things in our sexual past that we are ashamed of in some way, or we're just afraid to admit it because we're worried about what other people would think. And that's what always held me back for so long. And, you know, I share little anecdotes, things here and there. I don't go into all the details about my sex life, you know, in part because I think, Sometimes when you're getting, you know, into all those details, you're also revealing things about other people at the same time. And so there's that sort of balance between what are you saying about yourself versus what are you revealing about other people. But, you know, as one example where I kind of put myself out there a little bit, I'm a guest on the new Vice TV series, Sex Before the Internet. And the first episode is all about the history of 1-900 numbers, you know, these phone sex (laughs) hotlines. And, you know, in the 90s, as a teen, I actually called some of them because I didn't really have any places I could go to learn about sex you know this really was before the internet i mean we had an aol subscription it was for five hours (laughs) per month split between five (laughs) people you know, right. on our dial-up modem. And it's like, and, you know, we only had one computer. There was only somebody in the room with you, so you couldn't look for sex online. So I would buy these prepaid calling cards, and I would go sit in my car at the edge of the grocery store parking lot. And, um, you know, I found out that, like, you could take these prepaid calling cards and dial 1-900 numbers. Now, your minutes went by really fast on those <laughs> calling cards because they counted it, like, four or five right. yeah. or whatever. But, you know, I, I, I called, Them up, it turned out that I was like really bad at the whole phone sex thing because you know they (laughs) asked you like what do you want? What are you into? And I'm right, like, right, I, right. I don't know. You tell me. <laughs> you know? So, you know, for me, it wasn't like a really arousing experience. I don't know that I got a lot out of it, but you know, it was part of my own sexual journey. And so I think, you know, being able to share things like that creates these ways that you can connect with other people and maybe open up more conversations. So that's, you know, kind of how I've tried to bridge that divide a little bit.
1: Yeah, totally. I, I think that it's so much about You know, we have a scene in the film where it's kind of five close friends and we're just talking about things. And, and, you know, that was like a three-hour conversation that we put into like four minutes. But, you know, I think we're all just so hungry to have these conversations that talk about these things we've never talked about before uh, in a place where we can kind of learn and see, you know, like, oh, wow, it's interesting how... Different We all are seeking kind of the same thing, which is kind of some sort of sexual health, you know, how different we we all kind of get to it and how we think through and how you do need a community. You need a village to really think these things through that that, that's kind of been the biggest message for the whole film. You know, I, I think considering where we are as a culture, I think the first tiny baby step we all need to get to is let's just start having conversations with the people we love the most. And it's so much about baby steps. You know, it took me seven years to to make this film because I I had to go through my own process of, gosh, why do I have all this masturbation shame? You know, it took me a long time to unpack that. You know, why do I have all this fear around talking about my fantasies with the people who I'm having sex with? You know, like, you know, why is it harder for me to talk about sex and have sex? It's something that until I started going through this process, I just didn't realize how closed off I still was. You know, I thought coming out of the closet was going to solve so much, but it's just was really the beginning for me. And I think most people don't even get that moment. They don't even get that moment where they come out of the closet about something. You know, thank God I had that moment where I kind of, it was like a middle finger to the the world and this is who I am. And I, I'm not going to lie about it uh, because it helps you then to make, come out of the closet about every other little thing. It just makes it easier and easier to do that. Uh, but until you have that, like, highly traumatic <laughs> experience and not knowing how that's going to go. And then, you know, hopefully, it, it, you know, like like it was in my life, it took time for some people. Uh, but they're, you know, now they're coming to a theater and my ass is hanging out on the on, you know, a 30 foot screen and they're taking pictures with me under it. You know, I could have never imagined that when I first came out of the closet. So so it's been something that's been so I've been so grateful for that this movie uh, was kind of like a second coming out process for me, and now there's just—I mean, like I'm talking with you in this public forum about masturbation, about sexual fantasy. I've—I've I've heard my mom call me a sloppy masturbator uh, over and over and over again in multiple theaters. You know, you know, there's, it's very freeing now in a way that I—I I think very many people don't understand how liberating that is. How how much they're still trying to fit into boxes that aren't real. It's been such an eye-opener to see that, you know, I thought I was this sex-positive, sexually progressive, open-minded person, but by the time I started this process, started this movement when I turned 30, I came out when I was 36, through that whole process, I just realized how closed i still was and and scared i still was about my own sexuality which is so sad because it's one of the most beautiful gifts you have as a human being now it's i feel like it's my mission to help people who i don't necessarily agree with or who are scared of these things you know to have those conversations because it's it's so hard to create those spaces but when you can it's it feels so good
0: Yeah, I can relate to everything you're saying. You know, just because somebody calls themselves sex positive and, you know, goes out of their way to not judge or shame other people doesn't mean that they're not judging and shaming themselves. You know, it's really that (laughs) relationship with the self that is the biggest hurdle for people to get past. It's that process of becoming vulnerable opening up about things and that's what becomes very freeing and liberating and that's really one of the keys to great sex and you have to put yourself in that position of sometimes being very uncomfortable right because being vulnerable is an uncomfortable position to be in
1: it's awful yeah
0: (laughs) (laughs) but it is one of the keys to opening up
1: yeah but with practice you know people ask me all the time like Well, how do I do it? How do I? I'm I'm like, okay, again, again. This was a seven year process. I was going through therapy at the same time. You know, this isn't something where it happens overnight. But just like coming out of the closet, the first time I said it, I I literally was contemplating suicide rather than say it. But now it's nothing. It rolls off the tongue, you know. And so it's the same thing with anything else. I, I think you have to make the tiniest little baby step you can. Push yourself just to the level of uncomfortable without getting too much and then testing the waters and, and slowly you realize you've waded into an ocean that you never could have believed or experienced, the depth of which is just so immensely fulfilling. And, and I think it's so hard to explain to people because if they've never really had that experience, that I do really think Americans, we often miss out on the full breadth of the playground that is human sexuality, That that it's something that It's only in the past couple of years that I've been able to see how much I still, the instinct is to shrink myself rather than to expand, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, so what I'm hearing is that your advice is for everyone to go out and make their own sex documentary, and that is the process. (laughs) It couldn't hurt, it couldn't hurt. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if all else fails, try making a sex documentary. So you do some things in this film that... I think would be terrifying to a lot of other people. And one of them is talking to your parents on screen about sex. I mean, just having that conversation in private would be hard enough for a lot of people. So tell us a little bit about why you included your parents in the film and what you learned from being able to open up a dialogue about sex with them.
1: I'm so grateful that we had these conversations on film and it's captured forever forever. Because I don't know if we would have had these conversations if it weren't the fact that I was making this movie. My recommendation is not that everyone go and have an explicit sex talk with their parents. For me, personally, just my own subjective experience, I, I have a very close relationship with my parents in many ways. But the gay thing really has always been this barrier between us, that this area of our lives that we tiptoe around, that I don't talk about my sexual romantic relationships to the depth that I would about other relationships, and they don't do the same, right? And and I think as we were making the film, we just heard over and over and over again, you know, you can have great sex education in schools, you can have a lovely, wonderful community that doesn't shame people about their sex sexuality, but if your parents from the very beginning and outset are... Anxious, nervous, uncomfortable, silent around sex—that's a really hard thing to overcome because it's your parents are always just going to be the main imprint you have about almost everything in your life. So in my life, you know, my my parents grew up within the Catholic Church. It was something you never talked about. If you were a good person, you never talked about it. So I have memories of you know talking about masturbation, erections, penis, vulva, and and my parents kind of shutting gently shutting those conversations down. It just compounded over and over. Uh, and it's not like the, they weren't willing to have the conversation. They just didn't know how. And so the idea of the film is that I clearly have this distance from my parents that I don't want anymore. So maybe well, let's just have a conversation about sex and see if we can break down all those barriers. Because I think by this point in our lives, you know, I had been out of the closet almost 20 years by now. Oh, we were ready. You know, we had done all the work. We had shown up for each other in ways that matter. We had continued, you know, building the the, the foundation of a strong, healthy relationship. This was just kind of the, the one thing that we still tiptoed around. And, and let's see what happens if we just kind of talk about these things. And and it was a wonderful conversation. Uncomfortable at points, sure. Cringy at points, sure. But for the most part, it was kind of a final reveal of, a, you know, that I was finally in a dece- able to see my parents as full human beings. You know, like your sexuality is such a core integral part of who you are. Um, and I think we're able to finally see each other for like the full human beings we were. That's just been such an amazing gift in this movie And that now when I'm with my parents, I mean, there's always going to be complicated issues that come up with, in a parent-child relationship. There's always going to be boundaries you need to set. But it just feels like we are now in a phase of relationship where we're actually friends. We're actually open about our true emotional state in a way that we never were before. It's just kind of that final piece I think we needed to talk about in order to really get to know each other in a way we've never really knew each other before. And I think that's that's kind of my main argument to people that around, you know, like, why talk about these things? Why is this important? People often dismiss this as not important. But it's, it's you know, that your sexual relationships are the ones... That you'll remember on your deathbed. They're the ones that are so key and core to who you are as a person, how you navigate through the world. And if you're hiding that part of yourself to people who you love, you're not really in a full, true, <laughs> connected relationship. It's it's just impossible to be able to have a have a real relationship if if you're really hiding or controlling or oppressing the sexual side of yourself. You know, and it's it's so hard to talk about because when people talk about sex, they often think like intercourse, like we're talking about intercourse all the time. And no, like I don't want to talk about intercourse with my parents. But I do want to talk about issues of like, oh, that person's attractive. I want to talk about how do you deal with complicated sexual issues later in life in long-term relationships and monogamy, you know, you know things, you know, the sex and sexuality is so broad that, that I think one of the things we really need to do as a culture is to expand that definition or think that through because if you're not talking about sex and sexuality, are you really able to have true committed relationships with people? I, I, don't, I don't think that's possible.
0: Yeah. And I think when you put up this barrier to talking about sex because you say this is going to be uncomfortable, that just makes it easier to erect, for lack of a better term, other barriers to talking about uncomfortable issues. And so you're just, at some point, you just become very restricted and limited in what you can talk about. And it, becomes these sort of mundane conversations that never have any real depth to them. And that's where opening up those conversations about sex can open up conversations about emotionality and intimacy and everything much more broadly and just you know, give you a much better understanding, knowledge, way of relating to other people in your life.
1: Totally. I think about myself before coming out of the closet. You know, it's just that constant hum that's always there, that anxiety that you're going to be found out it's oppressive. And then I just, for people who are scared to have these conversations, it is scary. I, I don't want to negate that, but I think it's the life on the other side. If you can find that community who, who lets you be who you are and have these conversations talk about, it's just, I can't stress enough how liberating it, that really feels. That, that, that to me is true freedom.
0: Yes, it is now you cover a lot of ground in this film including sex education masturbation porn fantasy religion and so much more so let's talk about a couple of them and we'll start with porn now concerns about porn in many ways strike me as being this kind of unifying crisis across the political spectrum you know it seems like everybody in the media is talking about how porn is bad it's addictive it's ruining our sex lives and relationships and so forth but if you look at the research, on porn, it tells a very nuanced story with people being far more likely to report positive impacts or no impacts of porn on their sex lives compared to negative impacts. And I'm not minimizing the people who have that experience of negative impacts, but that's not the norm in terms of what most people experience. So what did you learn about the effects of porn in making your documentary? And why do you think it's so common for people to just automatically go to porn as like the root cause of all of society's sexual problems?
1: Porn is something, that's probably the biggest section of our movie because I think, for me, it's complicated because porn was the first place I ever saw two men having intercourse. And it was actually framed as like a positive experience. (laughs) You know? I I, I think in the past, in movies, film, it was coded as like sad or rapey or, or, or tragic. And it was the first Understanding I had, like, oh, this is how two men can be intimate. Like, no one had ever talked to me about anal sex before. And to see that was just in a way that I think it's hard to explain was just so validating of who I was. Like, it allowed me to see there was a community out there that is making these films in a way that is not shaming in any way. It's positive and exciting and fun. It gave me hope as a little tiny queer kid that maybe the pressures and the stresses i saw and, uh, there, there was hope you know and i needed hope so badly at that age in making this movie i think saying porn is bad is like saying movies are bad it's like saying superhero movies are bad you know you know there are good superhero movies and there are bad superhero movies in some weird way i did think of porn as separate from the media landscape but it's not it's part of the media landscape and, and i think that's been so helpful for me to contextualize porn you know like you can definitely find porn out there that's made with totally unethically treating the performers in horrible ways, exploiting people in the worst possible ways. And then you can find porn out there that's made with everyone's consent. It's a beautiful expression of who they are, and and they just want to entertain people, and they just want to provide a little excitement in someone's life. You know, so I think, and I think because we don't talk about how much we're all watching porn and how... How sometimes the best part of your day is when you watch porn. You know, there are some days that are just like that. Because we don't talk openly about it, it's so easy for, and I'll say bad faith political commentators, politicians to pick the worst possible examples and make that representative of porn as a whole. And I think the only acceptable kind of discussions of porn in media are around people who have porn addictions, which I'm not discounting as a real thing, uh, just like people have alcohol addictions, but we don't ban alcohol. You know, and and I think there's just no nuance or context. And I think the first step ultimately is that we all just need to talk about how, you know, porn is fun. It's exciting. It's It gives you new ideas. It helps you live out fantasies. You know, we've been painting pictures Of people having intercourse on cave walls for you know hundreds of thousands of years, it's who we are as as a species. We like stories. We like depictions of exciting taboo things. It is one thing where where you know in the movie we talk about porn literacy, and I'm sure you've talked a lot about it. I know you've talked a lot about that on on your podcast. And and, but when you bring that up, I, I get it. I have a lot of empathy for parents when they hear porn literacy, they freak out that porn is going to be shown in the classroom. (laughs) Like, I I get it. If you've never been talked to about porn in your life, and then all of a sudden, the first time you hear about this is that we're going to be talking about porn to your 8, 10, 12-year-old kids, I I am completely empathetic because I probably would have freaked out before making this movie as well. So I kind of think we need to think about this more as media literacy. You know, it's just a, a component of media literacy, just like we should be teaching kids What is good journalism and bad journalism? Just like we should be teaching kids about why Disney movies from the 1940s perpetuate harmful, damaging expectations of a relationship should look like. Just like romantic comedies and comedies in general from the 60s, 70s, 80s also perpetuate harmful ideas about how we should treat people in society. Uh, Porn has the same thing, that we need people, you know, it's just any other form of media. Good, there's good and bad, and, and we need to be teaching our kids you know, what's good porn, what's bad porn? Because, you know, you can lock your kids up as as tightly as possible, but they're gonna find it. And just like I was able to find porn very easily, despite my parents' best <laughs> efforts. So 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 I think it's something that the less and less we talk about, the worse and worse the harms can get. Because there are some problems. You know, people kids should not be learning about sex from porn, which like the way I did. I think it's hard for me when I'm having sex not to compare myself to a performance that is unrealistic. The first decade of having sex, I think I was more performative in thinking about how does this look and how am I, being, am I a good sex person versus like being in the moment and present and pleasure with someone else. You know, you know, porn doesn't really go through that. So I think there's a very nuanced, complicated conversation to have. But the first step is that we all need to be open and honest and come out of the closet about how much porn we watch and how great it is.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, if you don't give kids sex education and you pretend like porn doesn't exist, you know, porn is eventually going to become the way that they learn about sex. You know, that's what the odds are because it's so easy to access. It's much easier to access now than it ever was before. I think that's part of the reason why. We want to blame everything on porn because we just say, well, it's just widely and freely available and anyone can get it and all these other sorts of things. But, you know, it's also worth recognizing that a lot of these sexual problems we have predate the Internet era (laughs) in terms of, you know, sexual shame and difficulty communicating about sex. Like, these are ever-present problems. They're not new in the world of porn. But I think when porn becomes the default form of sex ed for a lot of people, that that can introduce some problematic elements when they don't have a way to contextualize it. And if they start comparing themselves to the bodies that they see on screen or they start watching very, say, intense or aggressive forms of porn and start to think that that's normative for what all sex should be and what everybody wants and enjoys, right? So that porn literacy element... Is very important, along with what you said, the you know broader media literacy element. Like we all need to learn how to contextualize all of this media, sexual and otherwise, that we're consuming all day long.
1: The only other thing I'd add is, since making this movie, I now pay for all of my porn. I haven't done much research about it, but kind of the OnlyFans model it makes me feel a little better in the fact that at least porn performers are actually able to control the business aspect and maybe make porn uh, that feels better to them. But that's another thing, you know. If, if you're not happy, you're scared, or you don't like the porn choices out there, and I get that. You know, I believe me. You know, I wish there was more porn uh, with people who look like me. The kind of only action I think I feel like I can do around that is pay for the porn you you want to see. <laughs> that's hard. To, that's a hard sell. Uh, but but that's kind of my only one other uh, piece of advice.
0: Well, and, you know, the other benefits of paying for porn are that, one, you're not going to have to watch all the ads, (laughs) and two, (laughs) you're not going to have to sort endlessly for, you know, hours to find just the right clip. Right, right. (laughs) So, so, something else that you talk about in your film is this intersection of sex and religion, and we talked a little bit about this at the top of the show, Uh, but something in the film that you do is you interview a Catholic priest, and That was a particularly fascinating segment to me because, you know, as I mentioned, I'm someone who is a product of Catholic schools and the perspective that they shared on sex is definitely not the perspective (laughs) that was shared with me. So, you know, it seems that different leaders within the same religion can have very different views and understandings and interpretations when it comes to sex. So I'm curious about, you know, how challenging was it to get a Catholic priest to go on screen with you to talk about sex. And what did you take away from that conversation?
1: Yeah, I mean, for obvious reasons, uh, most people who are in the Catholic hierarchy uh, do not want to have a free-ranging, wheeling kind of discussion about uh, sexual morality when it comes to the Catholic Church, because I think they know inherently they don't really have a leg to stand on. And so I think being in San Francisco Finding the Jesuits, who who are much more on the progressive end, Pope Francis is a Jesuit. We were able to find Father Donal Godfrey, who, who, you know, if every priest was like him, I think I'd still be a Catholic, right? He came to San Francisco in the 80s during the HIV AIDS crisis, saw how his calling to be of service was being denied because simply of the matter that the people who needed the most help were queer men. That really affected him in terms of how he he sees the Catholic Church's messages on sex, you know, that the church was not meeting people where they were and helping them actually think critically about the morality, spirituality of sex. And so the reason I wanted to put this interview in the film is to kind of give people a different model of, you know, what could good moral, spiritual teachings around sex and sexuality look like? Because after that interview, I really do think of my life before and after that interview. Because it really opened up for me how much maybe I overcorrected in another way when it came to my spiritual, moral thinking around sex. That my instinct uh, was to come out of the closet and as the biggest middle finger to the Catholic Church, I could think possible sleep with as many men as possible, anonymous hookup, just just you know, dick after dick. <laughs> that, that was my motto, right? Like it, it was a a, a very strong kind of FU in many ways. And I think what I lost in that process was the real core spiritual component of sex, which is like to be in pleasure with another person, to be totally open and vulnerable and connected is one of the most beautiful, greatest gifts that I, I can imagine. It, it makes being in a body worth it. There are so many things that are awful about being in a body, but but th- that that is the payoff. And I didn't think about that at all for 10 years. You know, I, I didn't think about the other person. I, I saw them as a number, as a conquest. And I think through that interview, it really... In a way that that is blows my mind. It made sex so much better for me because I thought so much more about about the spiritual connections I was making in my life. I think the Catholic Church, at least in the in the Western world, will continue to lose a lot of its membership if it cannot interface with the public around sex the way the way it a- actually is. That sex is for pleasure. It's for connection. Uh, sometimes relationships last a night, sometimes they last a lifetime. And there's a lot of different questions and, along that spectrum, but they're all part of the amazing tapestry of human sexuality. And, and uh, we need a place, I think, and I, to talk about these things with people. Again, that's kind of my main message that, and, and the church would be perfectly situated. The, the structures are there for us to have those complicated conversations, uh, but they're totally blowing that opportunity by hewing to a, a value system uh, that maybe, maybe made sense, you know, 2,000 years ago, but makes no sense today.
0: Sexuality and spirituality, I think for a lot of people are seen as kind of these polar opposites, that they're not compatible. And I did an episode of the podcast a few shows ago with Dr. Eric Sprankle, and we talked about this connection between sex and religion and how... You know, when you're trying to balance that, it's important to recognize, and one thing that helps a lot of people, is that there are different ways to interpret writings and scripture on sex within a different religious framework, and... When people start to realize and recognize that, it becomes a little bit easier to integrate sexuality and spirituality. Where people have the most difficulty and then the most problems in their sex life is when they adhere to this very rigid, strict interpretation of what is out there. And so, you know, that's just something that is helpful for some people is to recognize that, you know, some of these different interpretations exist. Sex therapy can also really help a lot in terms of, you know, how you integrate your spiritual identity and your sexual identity and all these things uh, at the same time. So it is a very complex issue. So let's talk about sex education. We know that sex ed in the U.S. and many other parts of the world is not very good and often doesn't happen at all. And it's interesting when you look at public opinion polls in the U.S., you know, you actually see widespread support from parents for comprehensive sex ed, but that's not what they're getting. You know, that's not what the kids are getting. And in fact, politicians are increasingly pushing to restrict what can be taught about sex in schools, with some going as far as to argue that comprehensive sex ed amounts to grooming and that it's going to increase child sexual abuse. So what's your response to that?
1: Oh, gosh. You know, I'd love to hear what you think, because I, I, this is something where I kind of have no idea what to do, because it's, it's so difficult. You know, I think... When it comes to sex education, that the worst kind of irony, hypocrisy about all this is that the best tool we have to protect children from abuse, sexual abuse specifically, is comprehensive sex education, right? When you ask abusers how they pick their victims, it's kids who are not in communication with adults in their lives about their bodies, about relationships, about sex. But I don't know, I don't know how you feel. Like it's such a difficult concept to get parents to understand. And I, I understand it. I feel that. Like when I first started making this movie, I was going to the sex ed classes with eight, nine, 10 years olds, and, and the, the nurse or doctor would immediately be like, what is masturbation? How does sex feel? And I, my body just involuntarily, like, like just froze. Like, I was like, oh, this is too young. I, so I understand that response. And it's, an, you know, the most cynical, power-hungry politicians can manipulate that response, That that kind of ingrained sex negativity that we're all born into. Uh, it's very potent. It's it's deep within me. I, I get it. I feel it. But once you're in those classes, you realize like these kids at a young age are already have tons of questions about these things. No one has talked to them for eight, nine, 10 years about these things, and this is the first time uh, they're getting a chance to do it. And it takes a little time for them to warm up because their whole life, anytime they brought up these issues, they've been shut down. But after a while, you realize that these kids really want to know these things and are already thinking about these things. And when I think about yeah, like I. You know, frankly, I first saw porn when I was nine years old. Broke into a dad's closet, found a video, put it on, and and I had no idea what was going on. That was probably and by that time it's already too late. And so I, I get it though. Like if you're already hear sex education to a five-year-old. Because most parents have never gotten a good sex education, they think it means intercourse education at five years old. You know, and, and I think a lot of that has to go to, you know, maybe we should call it puberty body relationship education. We should be very specific about what it is. You know, the other alternatives, like kind of try to expand what people's definition of sex is, but I think that's much more difficult to do.
0: So, you know, I think a good way of framing it is that we're talking about age-appropriate sex education, right? So it's telling people what they need to know at a certain period in time and to totally dismantle this idea of the talk where you have like this one conversation at one point in time that teaches everybody everything that they need to know about sex right i think the helpful way of reframing it is to say okay for your younger children it's starting out communicating with them about you know basic principles of consent and boundaries and you know what is good touch versus bad touch and you know if somebody touches you in a way that makes you feel uncomfortable what do you do that's a place to start another point is to teach people the actual correct anatomical names for their body parts right so that people just understand like what their body is and also that kind of opens the door to once you have that information that knowledge You know, that takes some of the anxiety out of having, like, the more advanced sex talks later on. So it's just sort of age-appropriate, very progressive, what do you need to know at certain points in time? And also, you know, being honest when questions come up that your kids have you know so many parents just resort to lying or making something up when you know their kid asks a question that makes them uncomfortable and i think parents are often afraid that well if they answer this question then it's going to make their kids go out and do something or that it's going to lead to this whole big other series of questions and that they don't want to get into so they just like distract and create evasive answers and all these other things but i think A good way to think about this is that if you don't give your kids the truthful, honest answer, when they find out the truth, they're not going to look at you as a trustworthy source anymore, right? Because you've just lied to them about everything. Like, you lied to them about Santa Claus. You lied to them about sex. Like, it's just lies, lies, lies. You know, what was true about what you told me in my childhood? And I think parents should want to be that trusted source for their kids when it comes to something like sex-related information
1: yeah I think a lot about um I've listened to a podcast with comedian uh, Joel Kim Booster and he said, you know and I think this is a problem that humanity will never solve, but did you decide to have kids because you wanted kids or you wanted to be parents? you know I think that's a big distinction to have and you know for the people who who, who didn't fully comprehend what they were signing up for, it's hard to tend to realize that these conversations need to start really early you know I think some of the best responses from the film we've gotten are from parents who, of newborns who were already swatting their kid's hand away when it, it would go for their genitals, you know, who were already uncomfortable with just discussion about, you know, penis erection, all these things. And, and to realize that, that little flip that they framed it at that point as like a negative dirty thing, right? And then to kind of then see, I know, you know, your body, sexuality is actually a very innocent, beautiful thing. And, and I think that's something that's hard to get to flip. The one thing in this movie that I... The political question of sex education, which I think is always going to be a, a battle. I've spent a lot of time being angry and argumentative and kind of nasty towards those who disagree with me in, in this arena. But being forced to listen non-judgmentally because you're filming a documentary really makes you realize that if what you're asking for is tolerance, acceptance, listening, but you're not willing to give that back, there's no discussion that can be had. There's no mind that can be changed. There's no heart that can be opened. And so, you know, for those like me who are questioning, like, how do we actually get this into schools? How do we actually change minds? Because it's a, it's a political question. It's It's about school boards having the right makeup on a school board to get the right curriculum into a school the unglamorous, unsexy, unsatisfying answer in many ways is being kind of like what we were talking about before, like just being in an uncomfortable conversation and listening to people where they are, you know, even though what they're saying might be in many ways damaging, might be in many ways uh, hurtful, might be in many ways ignorant, respecting and validating their their viewpoint and their humanity, and then creating that openness where you can talk about your own personal experience about why you wish you had a sex education at an early age and how could that, that could have changed your life and how your only goal is, is not to radicalize children. It's just to present them with the most facts as possible so that they're not terrified or make bad decisions. But again, it's it's a long process. It doesn't happen overnight. You're never going to have that great you know, I, As much as I wish data, facts, and science could immediately change someone's mind, I now know it, it really doesn't. And so um, those conversations those, with people who you disagree with has been kind of a part of my life where I would have been too scared to do it before. But by doing this movie, I now realize I have to be having a lot more of those conversations if, if, I, if there's only hope for any change.
0: Yeah. And you know, the idea that we need to talk to people who have different viewpoints, different experiences from our own, including experiences, viewpoints that might make us uncomfortable, like, that is really important. And that's been a really big part of my career ever since I began teaching about human sexuality. Because my view is that, you know, if I'm teaching about science and data and what is going to help people lead happier and healthier sexual and intimate lives the people who need that information the most are the people who probably disagree with it, right? Right. right. <laughs> you know, because people who already know it, like I'm just preaching to the choir. And so it's been about finding different ways to communicate the same message to different audiences. And, you know, I've kind of had the unique position of teaching about human sexuality at different universities around the country. You know, I've taught sex head courses in Indiana, which is a pretty conservative state, but I've also taught them at... Harvard, you know, when I was living in Boston, and, you know, that was a very liberal student body that I was teaching to, and the reactions from the students in these different states were just drastically different, and so I had to find ways to adapt and pivot to different audiences, you know, teaching them the same information, because, you want to make it as accessible as possible to different people and different audiences. You know, this is why I also will appear on right-wing media outlets and, you know, I'll do the left-wing liberal stuff too. You know, it's, I don't want sex and sex ed to be a political issue. Like, It's something that everybody needs and so we all need to talk about it. So that's why I'm you know willing to, to really talk to any audience and sometimes have those really uncomfortable conversations.
1: Yeah, that's great. And that's something where, in many ways, I feel like I'm kind of going through puberty again, because it's, it's something where I didn't know how much I didn't know about myself. That discovery process has been terrifying, uncomfortable, scary, but conversation by conversation, day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, it, it's amazing uh, looking back at, at how far I've come in a way that I never could have imagined.
0: So what's next, Alex? Are you planning <laughs> on a sequel? <laughs> you know,
1: because there's so much to be said about sex, and
0: you can only say so much in eighty to ninety minutes.
1: I know there are so many amazing interviews, amazing experts we interviewed, and, and couldn't didn't make the cut. Uh, sadly, we went to a trans healthcare center. Uh, we we went to talk to historians and sexual orientation researchers. Um, but you know, in making a, we. 80-minute film, documentary. I think that's about as much as can hold someone's attention for a documentary, you know, and cueing to a story. My personal story, you kind of have to be pretty strict around what goes in and what goes out. So, yeah, there's a lot on the cutting room floor that I love we would talk about. But, you know, one of the things, when it comes to sex, one of the things that I didn't realize is just how quickly things have been changing at a, at a rate that, you know, surpasses anything before in the history of human sexuality. You know, I think... From the birth control pill to HIV AIDS to the internet, we're blowing up traditions that we've had for 10,000 years. And so I get it. I have a lot of empathy for people who their their initial reaction is panic and fear. And and so I think a lot about how that might be an interesting docu-series, you know, kind of, and and pun intended, uh, seminal moments in, in, you know, human sexuality where you know, we think about sex before and after and how these these technological changes, you know, going back to say, I didn't mean agriculture, they mentioned agriculture, uh, completely changed the power dynamics, the leverage people had, the relationship people formed for survival. And how the one thing in making this movie is, I'm just so crystal clear about how many of my sexual values are not really my own, you know, that, that have been imprinted onto me through generations of trauma and shame, you know, that we are so much less in control. The free will we have around our sexual choices and behaviors is so minuscule when you really think about it because of the systems and uh, pressures and incentives we have into the societies that we're we're born into. Uh, So that's kind of where I am now thinking like, you know, kind of like what you're saying to kind of take the politics out of it. Can you get people to think a little bit more high level, broadly structurally around how these very deeply held sexual convictions you have about what's right and wrong could change in an instant given a different structure or or culture that, you know, so, so I think that's something I'm really interested in, but then I'm also kind of interested in what we're talking about um, having difficult conversations about all sorts of things, sex, politics, Religion, you know these things that I in making this movie. I just realized how tribal I really was. That that I glamorized, romanticized that I'm a Berkeley liberal, born of the hippie movement of the '60s. That, that you know, free love and and acceptance for all. But half the country, I would, you know, you know, ten years ago, I would have said. Detail with them, you know, you know, and, and that just is so antithetical to what my what I purported my my beliefs and morality to be. And so I think I'm really interested in that too. Around can a queer Asian kid find connection and commonality with with someone who I I kind of in disappointing ways I see as the enemy. Um so yeah, so that, that's kind of where we're at now. I do feel like the kind of art I'm most attracted to is in making this film, you know, how do we have taboo conversations, how do we make them more common? Because, I mean, come on, the best conversations you've ever had in your life are probably with people talking about, you know, the most intimate, explicit, discussion of sex, sexuality, you know, discussions about religion, politics. Those are the the conversations you remember, and, and I want to have more of those.
0: More of the juicy stuff. There is still so much to be explored. I mean, as you were talking about all of this, that has me thinking a little bit about how You know, there's this interesting paradox of sex today is objectively safer than it's ever been before. When you think about how we have access to these highly effective contraceptives that we didn't have in the past. And then when it comes to STDs, we have a vaccine for HPV. We've got antibiotics that can cure syphilis and gonorrhea and chlamydia. We have PrEP that is like 99% effective when it comes to preventing HIV. You know, we have all of these tools available that can remove these very negative consequences of sex, you know, unintended pregnancies and STIs. We can't, you know, eliminate them entirely, but we have more control over them than we ever did before. So in this era where sex is objectively safer than it was in the past, sex is also seen as being riskier than ever before, right? I know. (laughs)
1: That's such a good point. i never thought about that way before, but that's such a good point.
0: (laughs) We're we're in an interesting place, and this is why we need to be having more of these conversations about sex. The conversation is always shifting because there are always new things that are being added to the mix, but still so much to be explored. And that's why, you know, when it comes to this podcast, we've really only scratched the surface about 160 or so episodes in. (laughs) So thank you so much for this amazing conversation, Alex. It was a Pleasure to have you here.
1: Oh, thank you for having me. This, is, this has been so great.
0: Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work and watch your film, uh, Sexplanation?
1: Yeah, you can go to sexplanation.com and you can find the link for where it's, it's streaming uh, in your country. And if you go to alexanderxliu, that's alexanderxliu on all the social media platforms, um, you can find me there too.
0: And I'll be sure to include links for all of that in the show notes. So thank you again for your time and thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website Sex and psychology, at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Miller and Instagram at Justin J. Miller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.